This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Card carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. He stood next to Big Pop, he'd be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Kate Massey, host of Warden Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. We're going to talk to folks from a few different corners of sports analytics, including my collaborator and renowned sports better Rufus Peabody. If you have sports betting questions, it's not a bad time to get them out to us. You can throw them up on Twitter. Give us your sports betting questions for Rufus Peabody. We'll ask him in the last half hour of the show. Adi. They got a few things going on. We got some sports going on, but of course, obviously, this is the morning after the midterm elections, and so you know we're we're about all things analytics and we forecasting, are. and so it's a good it's a good little exercise in forecasting, to say the least. What reactions did you have to how things went down last night? Okay, so a little bit of background, I guess. Um, the forecast all said that uh, the House would go to the Democrats and that the Senate would remain in the hands of the Republicans. A little bit of uh, it looked like it was the Democrats should take the, the House pretty easily, and the Demo- and the, the Democrats should take the House easily, and the Republicans should hold the Senate pretty easily. And probably and, pick up a couple and, seats. And probably pick up. And that, more or less, in the end of the day, that's pretty much what happened. At this point, the Democrats have one seat lead in the House, but there's a lot of seats outstanding, and I think they're going to get a bunch of them. So they'll probably end up at least in the high 220s, maybe to 230 um, congressional seats. So it's it's in some sense exactly what was forecasted, which is a little... In some level, surprising, only in the sense that... <laughs> given what happened two years ago. Given what happened two years ago. So a little bit of background. I mean, so, I mean, there was a little hope that in the Democrats there would be big, a bigger a bigger win. Um, closer races in the, in the, in the Senate. Um, um, well, landslide some, victories. Some, what people were calling some, a wave. I don't know what that means anyway, other than... But some of the happens. marquee races also didn't go the Democrats' way. Yeah. Democrats way. So the governor race in Florida, the Senate race in Florida, the, the Beto Cruz race in Texas, the Georgia governor race, some of these real big, high-profile state elections, but that the nation were, were watching, all broke Republican way. Right. So, there, you know, but you make an interesting point about the forecast, because coming after last year, where we, we thought we had reached this pinnacle of sophistication in political forecasting, right? And then it was just completely by many measures wrong at least surprised by the outcome and so people i think had their faith shaken a little bit in that and then this year it looks like it's going to land kind of right on expectations. right on so just give you a little bit of uh, a little calculation i did so in 2014 and 2016 combined there were 54 toss-up races these are races that are defined to be essentially toss-ups 50 50 and in those 54 races the republicans won 39 out of 54. Hmm. So if you think about that in terms of independent, identically distributed coin tosses, the probability of that is extremely small. Okay, so hold on. You're saying 14 and 16, 2014, Combine them together, yeah. Okay, but okay, your point's going to be the independence here, right? My point is, is independence and really what happened. And so in both 2014 and 2016, there were somewhat landslide victories for the Republicans unexpected in these close races. So you would think it's, is it 54 independent coin tosses or is it some other number? And my actual answer is it really is 
two independent coin tosses, or approximately. Well, really not. That's that's probably a little blunt and oversimplistic. But essentially, there is a bias, and we don't know what that bias is, which means in, in, and in both those years, they were biases in favor of the Republicans. And this year, we didn't really see much bias, maybe a little bias in favor of the Republicans, but not, not as large as it was in the previous years. These races are not independent, and they kind of almost line up like little electrons under a magnetic force moving okay, one direction. Now, now th- I think this was, this was true much more than people expected it to be true in 2016. Yeah. I think one of the stories last night is that the races were more independent than we thought if we were extrapolating That's right. from 2016. But there's kind of an obvious reason that would be the case. There was no presidential election. Yeah. There's no national well, There wasn't ticket. in 2014 either. So. Well, so, well, I would love to know what those numbers look like. If we could look at, you know, I don't know, some measure of the correlation of these races, call it pairwise correlation, all the average pairwise right. correlation between all state elections, I mean, on statewide elections, Something like that. And see how it changes from midterms to the presidential elections. Because I felt, I felt like the, the, the student who got kind of set up by making a mistake two years ago and underestimating the correlation and then overlearning that and expecting more correlation this year. And I think one of the big messages from last night was these things are less correlated than we thought. It could be. I mean, it's hard to tell in one one year. I mean, we saw two right. years of fairly heavy correlation. This year, they looked a little bit more uncorrelated. It's not always clear why. Maybe maybe we have to remember what when you say uncorrelated, it has to do with the fact that it's in, it's conditional on the data we have at the time of the election, and that's supposed to tease out everything that's predictable. So the problem was in the previous couple of years, we had a trouble figuring that stuff out, and this year we might have gotten better at it. I mean, there's one way to view it is that the polls are slightly more accurate. We've gotten over some of the obstacles that happened a couple of years Hold ago. Hold on, you're, you're going down into forecasts. I, I, I'm, and you well, lost me a little bit. I'm talking about just forget forecast. Consider just the, the, uh, the outcome. So let me give you a, a concrete example. In 2016, early in the evening, the Florida races were far more competitive than were now I'm back in the forecast. The Florida races were competitive, so maybe it does go to forecast. You have to because the forecast defines what's a close race in the first place. Okay, fair enough. Because so, for example, Clinton was you know supposed to win Florida, or she was supposed to be you know at least barely win, and then it, it turns out that Trump was going to win Florida, and 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 for many people it was ah uh, you know crazy Florida things happen down there. Right, Just but wait we till saw wait the till crazy wait, Michigan, crazy yeah. Ohio, and right. then it turns out that that was 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 auguring what was going to happen in very different parts of the country. Okay, now fast forward two years to last night. And that and didn't you start, do that. That's well, you, right. But you, but you had the same feeling. So yeah. Florida comes in early, and you start seeing that these races are much tighter than were forecast. To make your point, it is conditional on the forecast. The, the races were much tighter than expected, and it's like, oh, God, here we go. Well, the, like, just a little piece of early data. When I, when I uh, turned on my computer around 10 o'clock, 538, which is running live updates, had moved the Democratic probability of winning the House from, it started at 7 of 8, down to 2 and 5. Yeah, it's crazy. I want, I and want, that's because of the early election. Early, the earliest returns all seemed to go in favor of the Republicans. It was like 7 or 8 to 1. And they thought, here we go again. It's the rolling tide. Okay, okay. Let's let's go to that topic, because that, that drove me crazy. And I've been wanting to ask you, Audie Weiner, that question since last night. That model seemed poorly calibrated to me. So ah, you I love you use the word calibrated. <laughs> well, because because look, nobody uses that word in terms of forecasting outside of the the cognoscenti. <laughs> but you got you got to calibrate it, right? Because it's essentially a Bayesian model. So you got to know something like I mean, in this in the highest level terms, just how much weight to put on your priors. And they, it seemed to me that they 
didn't have enough weight on the priors because they were overreacting to these small early samples. I mean, you want to react. It's yes. informative, but you don't want to overreact. So the question for you, and well, we they, were, I think what they were doing was looking at that, that they, so many went in one direction. I think they were saying this is so that had, bias that we've now been uncovered and now it's a real piece of data that needs to be integrated. Does that mean that they had the correlation wrong, wrong. in their model? Yes. Okay, so they the, the fancy modelers at 538 might have made the same silly mistake that I made, which was overlearning one of the lessons of 2016. I was thinking about they're just not having enough weight on the prior, but it raised the question of how do we know what's the right amount of weight to put on the on the prior? How do we know? So, Adi, let me just back up. In models in general, yeah. <laughs> this thing seemed, their models seemed too volatile. I mean, to reiterate what you said, they went from, you know, for months, they said, Four out of five, five out of six, six out of seven for the house for the Dems to win the house, and then an hour into the returns, they're two like out of five. two out of five, and yeah. they were even lower than that at one point. And you're like, hold on, that doesn't seem right to have moved that quickly. We've had well, to I mean, listen, they're, they're, they were learning from previous two elections and saying that that early returns is highly informative. Okay, and, and what we're saying, and what we're and what we're saying tonight is this time it wasn't this time. <laughs> okay, really profound insight, but, deep stuff, huh? <laughs> but, but can we say anything more general than that? And can we say we think that there's this parameter of correlation, which is really important in these elections, and it varies. This is the thing; it varies between midterms and national presidential elections. It does, and I think also in this particular election, I think the the candidates themselves were mattered a lot, and. Uh, and that, that's a driving force. I mean, there was a, an election that took place in D- District 5 in Pennsylvania. We redistricted. And I was sitting with my daughter on Monday. She came down from New York to vote in Pennsylvania. And she wanted to see what the party platforms was. And one of the things that she was fairly flummoxed by was that the Democrats were running essentially without platforms. So in, in Pennsylvania, oh, the, they the had Democrat, a platform. Well, no, they're very simple. They wrote one sentence, stop Trump. Yeah. And the, and the Republican has a long, detailed policy you know, yeah. concerns and issues. Yeah. And so that didn't always take place. And so in the suburbs, that seemed to be the driving message, stop Trump. But outside that, in various different races, that those the issues potentially mattered, the candidates probably mattered mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. Who knows? I mean, the, the fact is, is that we have far less data than we think we do. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. essentially is my point. But I really like that you use the word calibration because I did some, uh, tried to do a lot of explaining to people about the about election and and polls and, and how we validate them. And most people to, don't understand. Who, who, who are you explaining these things well, to? Well, first of all, it's a, it's a question that people ask. I talk to my students. Stud- um, okay, students, I understand. I talk to my students, to friends. And I also had a, was on Twitter, and I was talking about it on Twitter, okay. believe it or not. Okay. Um, and accuracy, people understand. Everyone under, sort of has a feel for accuracy. Although accuracy really divides into two kinds of accuracies. Mm-hmm. There's essentially accuracy in terms of how many did you get right. So if you think about a poll and you have all the races and maybe there's 50 close races, a standard way of counting accuracy is, well, what fraction of those did you predict correctly? We call that misclassification or classification error rate or classification accuracy. And that just treats each race as the same and each forecast is the same. You're either going to pick it or you don't pick it. And we understand that from sports. But another kind of accuracy throws in a measure of of, uh, certainty that you have to attach to each of your forecasts and use those certainties. You can call them, if you will, probabilities, although I don't like to do that. Um, And you, you get... You get penalized or rewarded depend on on your certainty. So if you if you say a race is one hundred percent to be one way and it is, you lose nothing. It's a perfect it's a perfect guess. But if on the other hand you say it's one hundred percent and it goes the other way, it's the maximum error. So let me let me let me come back to let me just kind of elaborate what you're saying. You're saying we tend to just consider binary: did you get it right or get it wrong? 
and that's that's what many people think of as accuracy. But you're you're saying you know in a world where we have confidence in our forecasts and sometimes we're more sure than other times we should be evaluating them differently we should be giving them more credit when they get it right that's when right they were confident and giving give them more error essentially when they get it wrong when they were very confident and it's a richer wiser way to evaluate forecasts. that's right and there's a variety of different ways to do that you can think of it immediately as a bet um, that's that's one standard way of doing it. So if you have a certain, if you have an eighty percent confidence, that defines a bet, and then you can just sort of imagine hypothetically you made that bet, and then you roll them up and see what how much money you made. Okay, so so the challenge with this kind of evaluation is that we rarely, it's hard to get a sample enough to know. You know, if they take a one shot prediction. How do I think the you know do I think the Longhorns are going to beat Texas Tech this weekend? That's right. So I, I say, <laughs> well, actually, I think they're probably about forty five percent to win that. Okay, and they go out and they win. And you go, well, okay, I got it wrong. But I say, well, I just barely got it wrong. How, but we, oh, we no, can't, you can't so, do okay. that. You can't do that in a in a in a one shot. No, you, you can't, can't do you that can't in one shot. Deal, but if, one you, shot but if you do, if you have many repetitions of this, then you then we can get some sense of how you're doing. Okay, so can we evaluate their model? So we only got one election here. That's right, and it's not independent. But we can we do have a large sample of forecasts. And so what you what you're saying you want to do is you want to take five thirty eight. Forecast for every and, for every race. Yeah, they did did four hundred thirty five right. or whatever congressional yeah. elections we had last night. They had a number on each one of those. Things. That's right. And so you can say, okay, for all the races that they predicted would go between fifty and sixty percent towards one candidate, what percent actually did? Okay, now, for all races that went between sixty and seventy, how many did? Right. And you can kind of draw that curve. You can, but that's not accuracy. That's calibration. That's calibration. And uh, that's calibration. That's why I, that's why I said it. About it. Uh, right. So, <laughs> thank you. And and they're not. And, and and it's surprisingly not connected to accuracy. I mean, they are connected to accuracy indirectly, but you can have a forecast that's perfectly calibrated, but is actually kind of horrible, in the sense that they're really other, high or really low. Yeah, and in the sense that there are other other forecasts that do much much better. Okay, so so evaluate if spec the spec the evaluation for five thirty eight forecast yet last night. Tell us what you would do to evaluate how well they did last night. Okay, so the standard way to do it would be start with accuracy. So for every race that they predicted, they have a, a, a probability. They called it a probability, but I would call it an uncertainty. And it might be 80%. And so if the race turned out they were one, they I would penalize them, um, take the value one, subtract off 0.8, and I penalize them 0.2. A more sophisticated might square that value. And then for every race, you take what happened and you subtract off their probability. Yeah. So if you go the wrong side of it, if you say 80% and they lose, that's a 0.8 loss, it's, or that's a massive loss. And so you do that for every election, you sum them up. And that's yep. a standard way of evaluating and the accuracy of a, of a forecast. Yep. But I would also look at the, at the, at the calibration. So I would, every time they said 80% or thereabouts, I'd like to see how often the the candidate won, and I'd hope to see that it's about 80%. And that would give me a sense that their forecasts are calibrated, and that means they mean what they say. I actually mm. call that honesty. Mm. So a forecast that is calibrated is honest, and you can honest you, you can believe that when they say 75%, that that's really what it means. Adi, if you've done the accuracy calculation that you talked about with this penalty, what additional information do you get out of the calibration? Uh, the sense of uh, sense of honesty. I mean, that's really that that it means so what, you can, in that you particular be, race. You could do okay on the accuracy measure and and have a bad. You can actually number. be you can actually be fairly badly calibrated. Yeah. Okay. For here's an example. I can be. Uh, I mean, I can say ninety uh, percent. Uh, I can say one hundred percent for every election, and lose. 
10 of them to 10% yeah. of them. That's, uh, that's actually a, a pretty damn good forecast in some level, right? Yeah, yeah, 100% yeah. on every one and lose only lose a couple. But my, uh, my, now I'm not calibrating because I'm saying 100% and, and I'm not 100%. Okay, so I'm this, 85% or 90%. It's really interesting because that starts feeling like a couple things. W- one may be bad and one perhaps good. W- rhetoric, you know, you don't, you don't get pundits on TV making 67% forecast no they don't they talk as if they're all zeros and hundreds or 90s and tens or they you know amos diversky said this famous thing people use only three probabilities zero, zero. 150 50 great line and and you're saying well if you really want to know if you say this if they're honest you want to know how they are with those middle probabilities and what's what 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 pays what pays in the public rhetoric are these extremes and you're saying fine 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 but you need to have another measure to find out whether they're honest or really well calibrated another way it works though Adi, in a good sense is in these in these, in these tournaments so for example 538 runs a nfl prediction contest where for every game every week you're supposed to put a probability that's that right a they're awarding you for 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 weighted accuracy and yep. now they're doing the accuracy measure that you talked about yep. And the thing is, though, if you've got 10,000 people entering this thing, what's the optimal strategy if all you care about is winning? Oh, you don't want to be, you don't want to be calibrated. You're not looking for calibration. <laughs> no, you don't. You want to make these extreme forecasts because yeah. you want to roll the dice. In, right. order to, in order to win a 10,000 entry pool, you need to have an extreme outcome. And you're not going to get to the extreme outcomes if you give these very calibrated. That's right. So we were, we're, the punditries are rewarded for being extreme because no one f- remembers when you, you aren't right so much. They remember when you're either spectacularly accurate okay, but or, this, or that, spectacularly wrong. Now we're wrong. in this very bad place, Audie, because now it we is. said if you want to be a pundit or win the pools... Go with extreme, you go go with with extreme, extreme, extreme forecast. But it's not good. The thing about 538 is they have a reputation. They've been doing it long enough. And they actually need to try to be sort of good. If you're a newcomer in the race, you really have to try to be um, extravagant. So I remember two years ago, there was the Princeton Election Consortium ran by Sam Wang. And he went... 100% in on Trump, 99.9. I'll eat a bug live if, if Trump wins the election. Um, 100% and against Trump. Against Trump. And that was actually a somewhat of a good move for fame perspective, because yeah. if you win it, it you're the only, you're, you know, you're really putting a lot of uh, um, eggs in one basket. Yeah. But I, it's, it really it starts it starts getting kind of it starts getting kind of depressing because of all the vert, all the benefits of giving these extreme, and more, moreover, if you want to if you want to build a track record of being calibrated and quote honest to use your word for this other way, you got you need you need a lot of history, and so it, it you know overnight you can't do it. Even over time, it's hard because people forget what happened. But if it wasn't last night, and so how do you build a track record? You want you want to say, look, we're the best calibrated. We're the best judges because we're the best calibrated and we're accurate. But I need to show you that over a six month period of you time do. or a six year period. I would of time. love to see people's people's uh, calibration forecast. I mean, Rufus, you it, would love to see it, but the public doesn't the demand public doesn't it. Doesn't demand it because they didn't know, even know it exists. Okay, so we're in this very. You've just depressed me. Uh, I have basically. sort of. I mean, uh, maybe we can we can change the world. Come on, where's your where's your idealism? <laughs> well, the, the, you got to start. But the thing is, you got to to do that. You have to hold people accountable for their forecasts, and you have to do that over a longer period of time. But we're he- heading into the analytics age. People are falling in love with analytics. They're using it all over. Um, I, I gave an impromptu lecture in machine learning yesterday in my, or two days ago in Sounds my, my class. Riveting, and people Robbie. went crazy. Really? Absolutely. People, oh, 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 they were like, whoa, Robbie, I want to learn more I, about this. What does it look like when people go crazy over a machine learning they lecture? They stop looking at their phones and look <laughs> up. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> 
That's awesome. Isn't that a great That's what counts as going crazy yes. in a Penn undergraduate class. That's actually right. an MBA class. But oh, the, MBA class. The right. bottom line is, is that is that people want to learn about these things, and I think we we have an opportunity as as experts to push a certain <laughs> a certain new you know new horizons onto the way that the standard practice. Okay. And I'd love to see calibration get talked about as part and parcel with accuracy. And when we evaluate forecasters, you know, what are their, what are their stats, right? So this is a, a little bit of a sore spot for me because we write, Massey Peabody writes what I think is like the best You guys are forecast, the, best. And the you, best. And you report your misclassification error rate. That's what you report well, and on your website. But we, we, we write this column for the Washington Post every week forecasting the college football playoff. And we give probabilities on all kinds of things. Basically, we're saying the probability a team will make the playoff. And we, so we have 13 weeks of this from the beginning of the season. And we actually do pretty well. And we, we often see the, the main benefit, I think, over the years is that we see good teams a couple weeks, two, three weeks before the public starts seeing the teams. Yeah, I mean, but, but, I, but I, I, I love nobody, your stuff. But nobody, <laughs> I'm just kind of complaining a little bit. Yeah. Is you don't get credit for that, essentially. So say that we, we never lost love for Michigan this year. They you li- didn't. You didn't. In fact, one of my, one of my friends and longtime listeners, Larry Abel, loves Michigan. And after the first game, he was whining hysterically about Michigan's performance. And I said to him, uh, well, you know, Cade Massey and, and Peabody, they, they think they did ter- terrific. And he grumbled. And, and I said, no, 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 indeed. They, they, I, think, I think the numbers, are not, not that I have any inside information, I'm just reporting what you yeah, said, yeah, yeah. suggest that they're, they're actually very good. And, yeah. and here we are, and you were way ahead of the curve but, on that but one. Nobody, but he, this is the point. Nobody remembers that. And, I'm, and I'm, I, you know, I might whinge about that a little bit, but I'm really bringing it up now because it's part of a broader challenge. It's really just a challenge. It's just a reality you face that people don't remember. And no one's really keeping score. And what pays in the short term is the more extreme forecast, even though that's exactly not what we believe is a wise forecast. But I think you did well with, I mean, if you actually were keeping track with, with other than misclassification rate, which you do on your, I guess, your pro football and your college football, the picks, I see that you have a kind of a running tally of the fraction that you make it. Maybe you should include a, a, a um, maybe a, a dollar weighted or 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 probability weighted forecast yeah, and a calibration, then we can get no, some we, real we sense. It's fine. We do that. We've run that every other year. You, so you have it. I mean, but I don't see I know, it on, what's on the, the website. What's the point of putting it out there when people don't mean what you've picked up another important issue. And that is that in the, in the for, football forecasting, it's just remarkable how all they really care about is your picks and they want it, And all they really care about with your picks is what your success rate is. I mean, well, it's just, it's just unbelievable. In fairness, in fairness, when they say your picks, they typically mean reference to the spread. No, of and course. At, at, once of that's course. done, all bets should be 50%. I know, but, the null. but what they should care about is some, some, some version other of this measure, calibration yeah. thing, mm-hmm. which says, like, you, whenever we say it's a four-point edge, we should be right more often than when we say it's a two-point edge. Absolutely. And what you really care, if you want to really evaluate a system, you have to look at it, whether it's right more often when it's more sure. Mm-hmm. You, you have to do that in order to evaluate a system. So we can we can look at just picks and we and you know we've made 800 900 picks over the last 10 years and and we do really well with that. But it's such an inefficient way to evaluate a system because you just get this binary outcome. It's it you lose you throw away a lot of information. A lot of data. So there's a very general point here that if you want to evaluate a judge or a model you need to collect probabilities. And then you need to evaluate their accuracy, not in a binary, did they get it right or not, since you've got to look at, are they right more often when they're more confident? You've, you, you can't evaluate it otherwise, or at least That's you right. can, but it's going to take you years longer to do it that way than if you look at the strength of confidence versus outcome. 
It's the right way to be. So, Adi, we've been talking election mostly this first half yeah, hour. But before we before we go before we go, I want to hear do, what do you make of? Um, did we learn anything last night that would start shedding light on twenty twenty? Like what 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 do we think? What do we think that presidential election? My gosh, if this I mean, have you ever seen something a midterm that felt like yesterday felt? I mean, it was. It felt like a presidential. It felt election. like a presidential. It really did. I walked through the Schuylkill Park at like seven p.m., which is peak dog walking time, and it was perfectly mild, beautiful fall weather, and there was nobody there. It was like walking around the city during the Super Bowl, like there was nobody out, and it was a midterm election. What is twenty twenty going to be like? It's going to be unbelievable. But from a forecasting, from an analytics perspective, how have you updated your opinion based on what happened last night? I've updated my opinion, I guess, uh, slightly in favor of the accuracy, the return to normalcy with polls. Okay. That's a little surprising to me, not least because of what we talked about with the 538 early, early, early evening stuff. They didn't have their model right. So they their real-time model wasn't right. Their their, their long-term forecast was good. By the way, that's, that's exactly why they shouldn't have been so overreacting in, to the early data. They had a good prior in the model. Um, okay, so what you're saying is... Uh, but I'm not maybe... moving that far. I mean, I was pretty much... Remember, our last show, we, we both went from seven out of eight down to really two out of three of the probability of the Democrats yeah, you, taking the House. Adi, I, I thought about that a lot. Last week, you said... I said, look, given all that you know and given how you think about these things, what would you do? Like, what probability are you carrying into this last week of the election of anything? So we begin with 538's number, which was six out of seven, maybe for the Dems get the House, one out of seven for the um for the Dems to get the Senate. And you're like, well, you know, I think they don't know as much as they think they do. I think we have too much confidence in these models. So I'm going to regress to the mean and ask you how far you want to regress to the mean. You say, I'll take it down by another sixth or seventh. And so I'm going to end up, you said, you're going to end up taking those and believing that the Republicans are probably two-thirds likely to win the Senate, maybe one-third likely to win the House. So you regressed. And I loved it because we talk about that in sports forecasting all the time. That's we're right. forever saying, yeah. we, we're forever advocating regress these things to the mean, don't overreact, don't overextrapolate from these small samples. But then, of course, that raises the question of how far to take it to the mean. Okay, so so that's something that you're saying, I like the models, they're, they're, they're improving, I'm still going to regress them I'm a still little regressing, bit. yeah. Okay, what else do you got for 2020? For 2020? Yeah. Um, well, you know, <laughs> this is a toughie. Um, here's, here's, yeah. here's an observation from the pundits, anyway, that it's a more political observation, but the 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 democrats the democrats who did better seem to be the more moderate democrats and mm-hmm. the more progressive democrats didn't do as well so some of the high profile some of these some of these big statewide races in the south the governorships the senate races some of the high profile candidates were more populous and they didn't end up doing it now they did better than but one might have expected they did they yeah. did better than one might have expected a few years ago i mean a few, a few a few months ago but they didn't quite get it done which raises an interesting point because we tend to evaluate these things in a binary did they win or did they not but there were you know there were a number of women that won congressional seats i mean a remarkable number of new female um, Many legislators of them in fairly safe democratic districts that i think the challenge had been in the primary just to even get there. Okay, I, I can't. I, I can't. I don't know about that level of detail. But one thing I heard was that there were some of these more moderate, and you know, some coming out of like military background. And so the profile, the ideal pro, it'd be interesting to see. Like if you were to do an aggregate of the profile of the Democratic candidates that beat a Republican incumbent versus the Democratic candidates that didn't, somehow conditioning out the situation they were in, 
the pundits anyway were saying that the progressives didn't do as, as well, well as the they should. Yep. The challenge here, of course, for 2020 is that the person that makes it to the general election has to go through the primary. And so that whole thing about progressives not doing as well as pundits doesn't apply to the primary. In fact, the conventional wisdom is that you got to run to the to, to the, the extremes, extremes yeah. in the in the in the primary. Which is always a difficulty, but you know I, I'm not an expert on on uh, politics. Uh, know a little bit more about baseball. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's you know we're not going to do much more politics after this, but the forecasting stuff um, kind of pulls us it's in. Even highly if relevant, not, even I mean, if you're not that. By the way, it's the same system. I mean, the same vocabulary we talk about sports betting, sports forecasting is the same same vocabulary we use for polls. Do you do, do you think? How do you think it? How do you think it matters that? Many of the analysts and many of the media are liberal leaning, and how does it affect the way you consume it? Well, the way it matters is that it's confirmation bias. So there's all kinds of data, and you only you filter the data that supports your views, and so you're really not seeing. They're just not admitting or saying out loud the things that just go away against what they w- want to see or or believe. So that that's that's an obstacle and it's an issue. I I a hundred percent agree, and I don't think it's so much um, a a conscious thing that they're positioning for public consumption as much as these unconscious biases that they filter the world a little differently. They weight the world a little differently. I mean, basically everybody does this. We know that everybody does this. How can it not be that a person just because they're on TV or just because they're running the website that everyone reads aren't a little bit, at least a little bit guilty, perhaps a lot guilty. And I don't get so much mad at them for that as I just add an additional filter as I consume that information because it leans. I think there is a little bit of a bias, even if it's unintentional. There's a conscious bias, an unconscious bias. That there, runs so that there, way. there's two solutions to this. One solution is to expose yourself to other kinds of media. And this is a big problem, as everyone talks about, because social media, you tend to expose yourself in a bubble of people who are like you. And then that 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 filter gets even stronger. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of ideal to have to have different flavors of people that you follow on Twitter or that you watch on TV or that you read so that you get exposed to everything. Which, of course, is a general good decision-making principle. It is. And, and that's, by the way, the that's the strategy. So I was listening yesterday to in the car to someone who I very much disagree with. I won't get into the content. And my wife walks in. She says, why are you listening to this? And I essentially said, well, this is someone I like is interviewing this person, and I just need to hear yeah, what they have to yeah. say. And I'm, and I, and I, I'm through the it, – it's through a conflict. So it was def- basically two people on two sides of the issue yeah. kind of talking, and that was yeah. deliberate. And, and it's, it's, it's sort helpful. of easier and helpful that yeah. way, but I have to expose myself. I don't, if I don't see what or listen to what everyone is saying on all sides, I become you know, unable to really understand the world. Yeah, and it, you might do that from an ethical perspective, but you're talking about doing it from a, from a judgment and decision-making perspective. Great. All right, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Audi Weiner. Our co-hosts Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow are out and about doing Shane and Eric things. They will be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation. 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866, or give us an email. Email is businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. It's a great way to reach us, especially if you're listening one of the times we're replayed. We're replayed four or five times over the course of the week. Matty Dats will take your email. He'll take them now. You can take them real time. We have answered email on on the live show. 
Or hit us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is a handle up there, at WMoneyBall. You can send us questions, observations, send us over-unders, send us questions for our guests. Just to real quickly run down the lineup, we have three guests in the next three half hours. Neil Greenberg this half hour, Michael Salfino of the Wall Street Journal and the 538 coming up at 9 o'clock. And Rufus Peabody, my partner and famed, renowned sports better Rufus Peabody, will be joining us. At 9.30. In this half hour, Neil Greenberg, a frequent guest of our show. He's a staff writer with the Washington Post. His beat is sports analytics. He runs the Fancy Stats blog. He also is a member of the Professional Hockey Writers Association. He has a Crashing the Net show, Crashing the Net, on WFAN in Washington, D.C. That's 106.7. If you want to pick up some hockey, especially from an analytics perspective, we always enjoy Neil um, when he's on the show. Neil, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you again. Absolutely. I, I assume you're calling from the D.C. area, yes? I am, yeah. I'm in the, uh, the headquarters of the Washington Post right now. What a place What a place to be on Very this exciting, day in yeah. particular, yeah. huh? So what's, can you give us a sense? We, we don't need to do too much on the election, Audie, and I just hit we it pretty hard it, for the last we? half hour. <laughs> but, you know, you're kind of ground, ground zero down there. What's it been like yesterday? What's it like today? What's your take on things? What's the vibe? Um, yesterday was crazy. We had so many smart projects going on from graphics of who was winning or who was leading. And um, we had a lot of coverage on all the women that were were elected to, to office and were mm-hmm. running. Um, so it was it was really, as you would expect, really hectic. Um, I saw my colleagues tweeting as early as 3.30 this morning, um, wow. keeping everybody up on, on the races. I just got in a little while ago, um, so I haven't, uh, haven't been on the seventh floor where most of that action happened yet. But um, it was, I mean, it was, it was great for me and really pr- makes me proud, uh, all the great work that my colleagues did last night um, and also leading up to the election. I mean, it was just superb. So I can imagine people saying something similar for, you know, 200 years even in the newspaper business. <laughs> what, what, it's different now, though, because you've got this whole analytics front that people are pursuing in politics. How do you think the analysts did last night and this with this, not just last night, but with this election, especially compared to how we've done in the past? And, of course, Washington Post, but, you know, New York Times, 538, other, other people who get in the uh, political analytics game. Yeah, I think um, I think it's becoming more refined each and every election cycle, only because we learned something new from the from the previous cycle. Uh, but this year seemed to go pretty much as as everyone expected, right? I mean, the, the Democrats won the House, the uh, the Republicans kept the Senate. Um, it seemed that uh, President Trump was pretty successful in the in the races that he stumped for in terms of of those candidates winning. Um, there were some close calls, of course, but um, I think uh, I think by and large it wasn't there wasn't too many surprises uh, going in. It seemed there, like there it, weren't it surprises, was. but there might have been some disappointments. Sure, there sure was, um, and I think that you know you look at the race in Tennessee. Um, that was probably a little bit of a disappointment, considering it had uh, a high-profile star like Taylor Swift come out uh, for the Democratic Party. Um, but um, like I said, I mean, I don't think that there was any any big surprises. I think that we we it, it's probably more. I mean, I think the big talk today is was it a blue wave or a red wall? Um, in my opinion, it seems like it's more of a red wall. But um, I guess you could spin it any way that you want. Um, but it seems like uh, I, I don't think that anyone's waking up today with kind of like a "oh, we nailed it" and no one else did type of situation. Well, you know, you know, we we talked a lot in the first half of the show, first half hour of the show about 
about how you evaluate judges and and your your recounting this just now makes me really want the postmortem on the analytics because some of these races even if they you know the accuracy they hit you know decently relative to the expected margins there were some pretty big mistakes here and there so i i would love to kind of have it broken down in terms of what they thought how strongly they predicted one direction and then what happened and where the patterns are i would love to see the kind of you know retrospective evaluation of of their performance i'm thinking of course about 538 but new york times and and you guys have some stuff as well no and i, and I think that that's one of the things that that nate does really well at um at 538 in terms of adjusting his models for exactly what you said right i mean if you're if you're picking a, a candidate to win by two and they lose by seven or they win by seven. I mean, that's, those are two very different things. Um, and I think that uh, you're absolutely right. I, I remember, I remember, you know, to bring it back to sports example, during uh, last year's March Madness, you know, every year there's a lot of people that say, you know, these are the upsets to watch. And, and one outlet was, was saying that they correctly called the upset of number one Virginia when they gave the, t- the, the 16th seed like a, a 1.2% chance to upset. <laughs> well, four and times the, myself, the probability, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm like saying to myself, okay, well, you didn't really do that. Now, you may have said they had the best chance, but you know, to, to, to spin it that you correctly called it seems a little bit disingenuous. Right. Well, well speaking of these, these, uh, these, these calls, and especially early season calls, any reaction to Duke's win last night over Kentucky? <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, can we I just give him? Should we just give him the title now? Should we cancel the March Madness <laughs> yeah, tournament? I tend to not. Um, I, I, I try not to overreact based on one one game, but yeah. uh, isn't man, the Kentucky I mean, team just a bunch of freshmen who are going to be yeah. in the NBA next year and have never played a game together? <laughs> that sounds like the typical Kentucky team. <laughs> yeah, but to, but, but so to was lose Duke this year. by what was it, thirty four points yeah. to to Duke? I mean, now these are two good teams, but. Um, That's not you know, supposed if, to happen. No. If we're talking about a statement win right out of the gate, I, I don't know how you can get much more than that after after seeing what Duke did. So it would it would be depressing if the best teams in each of the college sports just get better and better. I mean, we're that talking, seems to be happening. It, and, uh, it, seriously, I've, there are there are I've, we need to dig up this this piece I saw sometime this fall, doing an analysis on exactly that. That over time there has been greater concentration of the top recruits at the top schools in college football. And maybe it's because of social media. There's some, and maybe it's because of I mean, more generally technology. People can be scouted all over the place. Maybe decreased transportation. I don't know. Maybe what it's it the is. rich getting richer. I mean, you think about but, but for, why? The, for these. Well, because these players are probably they are they're professionally bound, and they want to be at a program that can prepare them the best for being for being professionals. And as you get better, you get more money, you get better, and that seems to be the obvious place where the best people want to go. So you're saying you don't need any technological change. You can just get slight slight marginal improvements your contribution to the athlete can be just a little bit better and then there's this cascade effect over time yeah no uh, and you think that maybe in football that there's a lot of room on the roster but you can't have more than two quarterbacks and really one at a time and that should limit that a little bit but maybe it does doesn't it's uh, interesting neil you wrote a piece recently on 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 bama um and what's the prospect that this is the best alabama team that saban's ever coached well I tell you, going. I, I wrote that before the game against LSU, oh, and um, I, I I wrote it with the anticipation that they would not dominate LSU like they did. Right. Um, so 29-0 in Baton Rouge at night, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I I, I wrote it with 
the the thought that they would win and 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 this would push this Alabama team to to one of the best that Nick Saban's ever coached. Um, it was such a dominating win that after you adjust their margin of victory for strength of schedule for the season, they're on pace to be the best Alabama team ever, and that includes the Bear Bryant teams of the 1970s. Wow! So, so what we're seeing now is just you know you talk about concentration of power. I mean. Alabama has to be the the poster program for that, right? It I mean, is. they just completely just decimate everyone else year after year, and it seems like nobody's in their class. And you look at that win over LSU, and, and, and like you said, I mean, not only did they shut them out, but it was just – there were two things that stuck out to me. Number one, Alabama got a lot better as the game went on. They went from like 6.7 yards per play to, in the first quarter to over 8 yards per play in mm-hmm. the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. So they were just – absolutely rolling, no pun intended. But they, but two-thirds of their drives um, ended up with two or more first downs. So you're talking about nine out of 12 drives were just completely moving the ball with, without any sort of problem. Mm-hmm. And you look at the type of offense that they run with their, with their Heisman quarterback um, and just the, all the weapons that they have around him, um, they're, they're hard to stop. And, and Alabama's defense is usually the, the part of the program that gets the most shine. But, you know, the defense is still very good. It's just the offense has gotten so much better um, that, they're, that they're just they're destroying teams. And, you know, the LSU team was supposed to be the big test because the knock on Alabama up to this point was they haven't really played anybody. But I think that kind of put it to rest. And, you know, like I said, even after you adjust for all those type of factors of who they played, um, this is this could probably be the best Alabama program ever. And that's so, saying something. So, Neil, tell us by what metric you're saying that. So it's always tough to go back across eras, of course, especially because right. these days analytics models require much more detailed information than is available on the 1970s Bear Bryant teams. So how are you making that comparison? So I use um, something called the uh, Simple Rating System, which is put out by the sports reference websites, which are owned by USA Today. And, and what they do is they they look at your your scoring margin of the of your games, but also adjust that for the the teams that you play. So if you if you beat a really good team, then then your scoring your adjusted scoring margin goes up, and and then adjusts them and 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 their opponents and their opponents opponents and so forth so, so is it a, is it, it sounds a, like elo it, but it's a more nuanced elo because it's very the, similar it yeah. uses it uses the differential yeah. rather than just Correct. the binary outcome so, you know. so that makes it a little bit easier to to compare against errors because you're your um you know, you're looking at what's your your strength of schedule in terms of opponents face it's nice so i can tell you that with the massey peabody models we a couple of weeks ago alabama had hit the highest number that we have in our in our system. So 10 years of college football, we've never seen a team at the number. So it's like plus 35 in the 35s. This was 30 you'd expect them to be a 35 point favorite against the average team in college football. And since that time, they're up another full point. So they are yeah. they're they're well ahead of the best we have ever seen. But let me say something. What, what I think what this is emerging as one of my favorite stories of the of the season. Because Alabama is so transcendent, no one's talking about Clemson. And Clemson, we have Clemson right on the heels of Alabama. So right now, we we realize we'd like more than the market, but we're happy about that. We would have Clemson only a one or two point underdog. And so Clemson, who no one's really talking about, is is coming up on the second best team ever in the last 10 years in college football. So if not for Alabama, this would be the best team we have seen in the 10 years we've been looking at college football. 
Yeah, and that and that jives with the uh, the numbers I have. I think I would have Clemson as a three point underdog to Alabama right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Clemson could go down in history as the best team that no one's talking about, right? I mean, because it's incredible Alabama is sucking up all the oxygen in the room. I mean, we talk um, about this LSU game. You know, just compare. You know, we're, we're talking about how impressive it was and how oh god, that was the one hurdle or whatever. If they were to play again this weekend on a neutral field. We'd make Alabama a 21-point favorite. 21 right. points against one of the best teams in the country. And let's compare that to Clemson. Two. One or two. So this is a yeah. big difference. They, they still have some work left if they're going to win this thing. But I'm just looking at the Massey Peabody numbers. There seems to be an enormous variance among the top teams. I mean, you get down to number, team number 25, and they're three tu- more, almost four touchdowns underdog yeah, yeah. to uh, to Alabama. That's yeah. a huge spread in the top 25. Well, that, you don't, and yes, you're absolutely right, and you don't have to go that far. I mean, before you get out of the bottom, the top 10, before you leave the top 10, you're three touchdowns down. I mean, they play Penn State. If they played Penn State, we'd make it a 20-point 20, 20 line. And so really the, the question for me is, um, were they really challenged by LSU? Well, it, it didn't look like it, right? I mean, and that's... <clears throat> And that's the and that's the issue with this Alabama team. Even even when they should have a strong test on paper, once they get on the field, it's it's not even close, right? I mean, I mean LSU had virtually maybe they had a chance. I want to say if I remember correctly, it was going into the second quarter scoreless, but but Alabama just doesn't trail in games. I, I want to say that they had you know twelve hundred snaps. They've trailed in exactly three of them or something like that. I mean, it's just a crazy number. Um, and so it's 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 hard to it's hard to look at Alabama and and not just see them steamrolling everybody else with the exception of Clemson, um, and that's going to be the that'll probably be the the truest test that we have right like we've been talking about. I mean, there's really no one else that comes close to being able to at least make it look interesting, let alone actually play it on the field. Hey, real quickly, by the way, Matt tells me that Vegas, I don't know what Vegas means in this case. I mean, it's a fair thing to say, but I'd like to know more specifics. Vegas would make Clemson a nine-point dog against Alabama. I think that's crazy town. I'm ready to put money on them now. It, and by the way, I'll be pulling so hard if that comes down to that, talent, that, that title game because it's like anything but Bama, anything but Bama. <laughs> and Clemson, act, I don't want to go to the, go to the mat for an LSU who's going to be a 21-point dog, but Clemson has a fighting chance. By the way, I think if Michigan... I mean, Georgia has some chance in the SEC title game. If Michigan got, gets them in the playoffs, Michigan, we have Michigan with a better defense than Alabama. We have, we have the number two defense in the country is Michigan, not Alabama, after, after Clemson. So Michigan can give them a fight. I don't think this thing's quite as done as people want to make it. Well, that makes it interesting, but I was just trying to uh, put some context here. You have about a nine-point I say you, Massey Peabody, has about a nine-point differential between number one and number three. And in the professionals, <laughs> in terms of the, the power rating, we, we in the NFL, I think the intentionally spread from number one to number 30 is about nine points in terms of power ranking. Well, we can Maybe, at least it's, in the beginning, it's, it's probably... It's two it's, points. One and three is two points right now in the right. NFL. So your, your point is very well taken. So it just, it's, it's incredible how much gap there is between number one and, say, number 10 in college compared yeah. to and, and more, what we're used and, to in the profession. And more this year than usual. We're talking to Neil Greenberg. Neil is a staff writer. At the Washington Post, you can see his work on the Fancy Stats blog there. You can also pick him up on his hockey show, Crashing the Net, on WFAN in Washington, D.C. Neil has been a frequent guest of our program. Neil, in the time that we have remaining, how many different quick takes on some sports can we do? 
you've got a number of interesting pieces and you cover them all. So let me ask you some quick questions. Sure. We're only a week removed from the World Series. Red Sox, one of the best teams ever. People are talking about this. It drives me crazy, by the way. What's your take? Um, I think that uh, there's an argument. I mean, you look at uh, how dominant they were during the regular season and then to win the World Series. You know, the best team doesn't always win the World Series. A team that wins that many games during the regular season doesn't always win the World Series. So it puts them in some elite company, and I think uh, their pitching especially, you can you can make an argument that they deserve to be in the conversation. Would I put them at the top of the list? Probably not, but um, they're certainly in the conversation. So what what did the Cognoscenti say about the Red Sox at the end of the regular season based on they had this real nice record, but we know records can be illusory. What what was the what was the 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 insight about their their true underlying strength at the end of the regular season? Did, did, was they, were they as good as that record or were they not as good as that record? It didn't were they look better like it than that record? Like- no, it looked like they were a little bit worse, a couple of wins worse, depending on if you're looking at um, like a, the Pythagorean wins or the base run, run wins or the third order wins. Um, so there, there, was, there was an argument to be made that they got a little bit lucky in some games. And what, what I mean by that is they won some games that maybe you wouldn't expect, um, whereas the Dodgers didn't win as many games as you would expect. So I think from the from like a, a, a probability standpoint, I, and I know some others, had the Dodgers as being uh, a better better chance to win the World Series um, than the Red Sox based on that. But, um, you know, in a short series, anything can short, happen. Short series. Yeah, they also had a shorter path to get there. I mean, True. the Red Sox are with the Astros, and the Astros actually under under perform their their base run or their Pythagorean. They, they right. were better than they the were better, yeah. They were better. They were better. Yeah, this I is... even wrote um, how the Red Sox were were a poor bet because of that, right? I mean the value just wasn't there exactly. to justify their their three to one odds. Exactly. Um, so I mean that it, you know it didn't work out, but again, I mean you have to look at value as well and, and I just didn't think they were a good value. That, that's right. That's right. Um okay, you've had a piece recently on explosion of scoring in the NBA. What is going on? We haven't quite turned our attention to the NBA because there's so much football going on, but I do see the headlines. I see these scores. What's going on over there? It's a couple of different things. It's kind of like a perfect storm of more efficient shot selection, right? We we were a couple of years in now of how the Warriors and the Rockets have been focusing on the three-point shot and shots at the rim. Um, so we're seeing more teams do that, uh, especially the local team here, the Wizards. Now the Wizards aren't having as much success, but uh, they are trying. Um, there's some changes in the rules. You uh, you know you they reset the shot clock to 14 seconds after offensive rebounds rather than 24 seconds. Um, you can't clutch and grab off the ball as much. Um, but the pace of play is also up quite a bit. Um, teams are averaging over 100 possessions per 48 minutes. It's the highest we've seen since the mid-80s. So what, we're, was we're it, seeing, what has it been historically? How much higher is that? Um, it's um, Let's see. So it's, it's about three or four possessions more than last year. Oh, jeez. Um, okay. It's so, been steadily going up since the... Since I want to say like the 2005, 2006. That's not what the economists would call an exogenous variable. That's not given by the universe. They're choosing to play at that pace. Correct. So what's what's driving what's driving that decision? It's it's more it's more pace and space. And and my own personal opinion is you you have more three pointers. There's they're taking over 31 three points a, a game. 
um, the highest ever, obviously. And what's happening is you're getting the long rebounds, which leads to quicker buckets in transition. So I think the game overall is picked up. You're seeing just a faster style of play, throwing the ball down the court a little bit quicker. Um, and, I, and I think that that's um, probably the biggest driver in terms of getting more possessions per team. So, so broadly, this is all driven by a recognition at some level by staffs that that there it's advantageous to play this way and and, and and all of it kind of goes in the same direction building toward greater pace and and, and better shot selection and therefore better points very right. very interesting all right listen Neil, we have to, i could talk with you for a long time but i gotta let you go thank you for making time for us this morning wish you the best down there in dc thanks for having me talk to you soon you bet that was neil greenberg neil is a staff writer at the washington post he's his beat is sports analytics you can see his work they have a blog down there um called the fancy stats blog He's also the host of a show called Crashing the Net. Crashing the Net is on 106.7 in D.C., WFAN, 106.7, Crashing the Net, if you want to get more from him. And as the name suggests, they cover hockey on that. Neil's good across a wide range of sports. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live from Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios. Looking out onto the Locust Walk at the University of Pennsylvania, Cade Massey hosting this morning. I've just been abandoned. Audie Weiner walked out of here. My colleague, my buddy, he's got to go teach or something. So I'm on my own for the next hour, but I've got great guests lined up for you guys. You can join the conversation with these guess if you'd like. Give us a shout, one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, or give us an email businessradio at siriusxm.com. Businessradio at siriusxm.com, or hit us up on Twitter. Our handle there is at wmoneyball at wmoneyball. We follow all of our guests. We comment occasionally about the world of sports analytics. It's a great way to get us a question or an observation or a complaint. Give us an over under. We'll probably do an over under segment. We might do a one person over under segment at the end of the day. You can also ask questions. We have Rufus Peabody joining us at the last half hour of the show. He's a sports better. Some folks like to talk sports betting. If you have a sports betting-related question, send it to us on Twitter. We'll get it over to Rufus. In the next half hour, longtime friend, fantastic follow, fantastic writer in the world of sports and sports analytics, Michael Salfino is joining us. Michael, sports analyst for the Athletic Fantasy Football, longtime columnist for the Wall Street Journal, new columnist, and it's great to see his work up there at 538. You can follow him on Twitter at Michael Salfino. Michael, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Hey, my pleasure, Cade. It's always so great to talk to you about football. I always feel like I should be asking you the questions. No, but, uh... Not even remotely. Not even <laughs> remotely. And it's not just football. Salfino's good across a, a wide range of things. He's a long-suffering Mets fan, which is always oh my a, God, a sympathetic yes. thing to talk about with him. Michael, I assume you're calling from the home office, North Jersey. Is that right? Just that a couple hours from here? Okay. Yes. Well, we pre- Rutherford, New Jersey. Appreciate you making the time for us. What are you thinking about this morning that isn't election-related? We've hit the elections pretty hard around here so far, so let's, let's do sports. Let's do sports analytics. When you're kind of shifting your attention from the election back to your usual beat, what issues are on your plate? What's on your mind right now? Well, you know, I just think the the interesting thing about this football season is is um, when you're trying to project like who the dominant teams are right now. 
And it just seems the Rams coming off that loss in New Orleans, uh, I'm, I'm curious to see like what your rankings actually say, whether or not they've dipped below New Orleans. I doubt they have since the gap is, was so wide and the game was, was relatively close, plus it was at New Orleans. And I'm just wondering if, if it's better, if you're better off when you're a team like the Rams who were undefeated to actually lose get that, that loss game. under your belt yeah that's exactly. interesting it's not like you get the gremlin off your back but that doesn't seem to be something that would make a lot of analytics sense though well you're you're right i mean mostly we're not going to worry about those kinds of things but i mean look we miss lots of nuance it's just hard to model that kind of thing but to answer your question we will post later today our latest rankings and the rams are still atop they're still number one the saints on their heels so going into last weekend we had the Rams about two, no, about a point and a quarter, one one point two nine points better than the Saints, and it's down. Hold on, is that right? It's down, but it's down just a little bit. So the the Saints looked good, but they they dropped a bit, and the Rams dropped a little bit. So the margin's about the same. It's about the same. We didn't move that much. We we basically got out of them what we expected to get out of them. Yeah, that's that was my sense of even just watching the game. It seemed like um, all things considered, it was. It was a, a good day for the for the Rams um, because I, I just worry like with a team like that if they had won that game and I wrote about this at five thirty eight they they would have been in such a dominant position for the conference seating and McVay has proven that he's the coach that likes to sit players um, he did it in the preseason pretty much the entire preseason and he did it last season in week seventeen as well and you just wonder with the bye and with uh, potentially meaningless games the last two weeks of the season, at least. It, 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 you're just almost like an uncharted territory. The only team that actually ever did that was the Colts, I guess, in 2009, that would have been, when they were 14-0. and And, um, you know, they ended up uh, going to the Super Bowl that year, but uh, that was a year that they lost to the Saints. So you're saying here's this idea, and because one might think it's a benefit, you get that far ahead, you worry about the grind on players. I mean, people love the buys because they can sit out for a few days and kind of catch up. And so you would think that this would be a good thing. And you're putting kind of a negative spin on it. You're saying the coach might be too willing to do that. We don't have a great track record. We don't know for a fact that that works out. But Michael, you know, now you're pitting kind of. What we know to be true, which is that physical wear and tear matters and managing the the health of the players matters, and especially rest. Rest has been under underemphasized over the years, and you know from baseball that ever you know, more than ever people are worried about rest. You're pitting all of that against kind of the psychology and the momentum. And, and so if I had to pick a horse in that race, I think I would pick rest. Yeah, and but there's also the, just the machinery of like being a team. In other words, can you – can you stop that machine for that long and then yeah. rev it up again? Yeah. Once, once the once the playoffs start, right. I mean, it is the team that manages to actually avoid injuries, but manages, but but is playing out the string and has just played the week before. Does that team have some sort of advantage if you have to kind of? Uh, try to start it all up from a full stop again. You know, it's a it's I, a I back, yeah, it's a great question. But you're but you're you're literally pitting against something that's like not modelable, and people we, that's the kind of thing the analysts kind of scoff at because they can't put it in their models, and it's very psychological. You're pitting that against yes. kind of what we know about rest, and uh, fair enough, fair enough. I think it's an I think it's a very interesting question. Now I kind of want it to happen. 
I want I want them to get that cushy lead so McVay can sit it, it these guys. It doesn't look like it's just to see now though because they they lose the tiebreaker to the Saints and it doesn't seem like the Saints are a team that's likely to lose more than a couple of games. So it's not so, about the division; it's about the home field in the in the conference championship. I to guess the, to, to the extent that the Rams have home field. I mean, we saw uh, you know against the Packers that they had to actually. Um, you know, use the silent count in their putative <laughs> home field because right. they couldn't. It was Packer fans, yeah. like so. That's going to be the case. Um, <laughs> Welcome they, to Los Angeles. Exactly. Assuming, wow. Assuming their opponent is is a, 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 a even a, like a remotely public team like the Packers, who has a huge fan base, that's going to be a road game at home for them, which is just so weird. I mean, the Los Angeles market is 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 bizarre that's the thing that that must be interesting to model like what is the home field advantage for the chargers and the rams that's great we're gonna i'm gonna talk we have rufus coming up after you and i'm gonna talk with him some about home field advantage he's done some work on that stuff but let's let's look over at the afc you wrote a piece in the beginning of the season called this is the title the patriots looked finished so they will probably win the super bowl what what did you say in that piece and how's it bearing out so far well, they had um, sustained a a pretty dramatic drop in performance over consecutive weeks, and that that's that's something that's very unpatriot like. So um, we calculated that was, if I recall correctly, about the fifth biggest um, decline in performance over a two week period in the in the Brady Belichick era. And the question was, and the question is always going to be now, this is always, the circus can leave town for Tom Brady now at any moment. Like, you don't know when it's going to happen. And this could, you could always be witnessing that because at some point it's going to happen, right? Like, he's 41 years old. He's going to drop off. You think there's kind of this cliff, this cliff thing that happens late in the quarterback's career? Well, typically that happens. Now, he's defying gravity, but at some point, gravity always wins, right? So um, it, it, so I guess, you know, so that was that was the question. Were we sort of witnessing a uh, Patriots regression and, um, you know, driven by the fact that their quarterback was now just a mere mortal? And, you know, you could have made that case even, even in the last couple of weeks and, and pretty much – this season has been kind of unbrady like in in some ways like his interceptions are way up his his accuracy is down um but but then he goes and and he and he and he, and he, and he kind of wins the second half against the packers against a very stout looking packers effort there last week exactly because what they do they do all the things i always think of like your your um efficiency stats right as far as uh, your offensive and defensive efficiency, like the yards per point, basically, like, and you, the way you conveyed that to me, um, you know, back when uh, we started working on this together, was that was sort of like the bucket that could catch all the things that would seemingly be uh, random individually, but if they're, if you really see some um, heightened efficiency on offense or defense, then you could assume that they're doing all those little things in a way that's like predictable. Mm-hmm. And it just seems that the Patriots are that kind of a team. Like their their special teams are always good. They do things like when you watch the game against the Packers, they're they're very good with 
with things like the pace of play, right, to make making sure that they get every single advantage that they can get. If there's a play that could be questionable as far as a review, they're going to snap that ball before you have a chance to throw the challenge flag. Like you add up all those things and it becomes something that's actually, uh, you know, quantifiable. Yeah. There's, there's, they're they're small individually, but they do so many of them. They kind of get them all right in one direction and teams don't do that. You don't see such systematically smart teams. They just, you just don't. And it may be because it's Belichick, maybe it's because it's, Belichick plus Brady, but they seem to add up these little bitty edges into what amounts to something actually meaningful. So, exactly. It's like how, what Bill Walsh used to say back when he was coaching the 49ers is we only have to beat eight, meaning that there were only like really eight teams that they were competing against because the other teams were just too stupid. They didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> and, Hold on. There, and, are, eight, and there I, are eight smart teams. I'm not yeah, sure that's true. Yeah, and I always true. wonder, like that was sort, sort of his, like that, you know, that, that was the number that he came up with in the quote, at least as, a, as, a, as I recall it. Um, but you wonder, are there – are there even eight teams now? I, I think yeah, there probably I think are. There may about be eight, eight smart teams, there, but but smart in what sense? I think there may be eight smart franchises. Well, I'm not. I'm not are, but a, but a smart franchise doesn't necessarily translate into a smart team. Exactly. And, and you can also have a smart team by luck and, and without having a smart franchise. So they're not perfectly connected. I'm more confident in the get in the number around the smart franchises. But yeah, like you, like maybe maybe the smart teams are the teams that don't do the stupid things in the draft and roster construction in terms of overpaying like non premium positions yeah. with the salary I'm gonna cap. Call, like I'm gonna, yep, I'm gonna call that franchise, and I, I do think eight maybe you know at least in the ballpark for for the right number. But those teams don't always translate into wins. I mean, we talk the Ravens are a very highly regarded team. They do a lot of things well along those lines, and they're bubbling around about you know five hundred for the last few years. That's because flat. They don't have the quarterback. That would be my argument there. Like you can't, you can't, you can't outsmart yeah. having a mediocre or sub mediocre quarterback. Yeah. Do you think they should depending get a, on how kind we want to be to Flacco? Do you, if you were Harbaugh, would you roll with Lamar Jackson now? They're in a bye week. They can reflect on these things. People are talking about it. It's just so hard to to start that up in the season. Um, I, I would because I just don't think that it could work the way it is right now, and it's sort of desperate time for for Harbaugh. And okay. what's so weird is that Harbaugh's job is on the line. But I think everybody in in you know the fact that you seem to agree based on what you just said that Harbaugh is actually a, a good coach, and it, it would be it's it's odd that he you know being a good coach, having a team that nobody could really ever say that the Ravens are are underachieving, you know, which is really sort of like the measure of what it's a measure. It's an important, it's an important measure. You bet. It's not the yeah. only one, but it's important. And, um, you know, he might be on the market, right? which is just so, and so it's desperate times for him. You might as well. It's, I don't think it could possibly work with Flacco. I think it's very unlikely to work with Jackson in season, but at least it has a chance. Yeah. That's interesting. So, um, you know, one thing they say about quarterbacks in the NFL, I think this comes from Paul D. Podesta, that they get better in their second year whether they play or, or not. And one of the things I hate about dropping Jackson in there now is that he hasn't been through that full first year. And it may, it, I think he would look better next August, next September, if they can get him some more time. You know, one second-year quarterback that people are obviously paying a lot of attention to is Mahomes. 
and the Chiefs, and our numbers have been slow to catch up on them because they're so far above expectations. We've slowly snuck them up there. We've got them all the way up to four now. We saw the game against New England. Tough to go in there and get that, but um, what 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 do you make of the Chiefs? What do you make of Mahomes, the phenomenal Mahomes, and do they have any chance against the Pats in the playoffs if it comes down to it? Now, Andy Reid, now there's a guy that, that is, is such a good coach um, as far as just his understanding modern football like what he's been able to do uh with the with the chiefs offense the last couple of years and mm-hmm. last year we had no idea like we were just like wow alex smith is really um is really yeah. good all of a sudden alex smith right now if you're alex smith you have to feel like you know shame basically that you were only able to do that basically in this system with the same players right yeah. um and, ashamed and is a little ashamed is it. a little strong word i mean mahomes is pretty exceptional right just because we didn't expect it of him come in doesn't mean he's not exceptional he's an unusual guy oh absolutely like and plus you know you never know what's so interesting about the nfl right like in baseball and and for fantasy i i, I do the similar things in trying to project player performance in baseball and in football but in baseball you have true skill level, and, and, and that has a chance to express itself in every iteration. Like every at-bat is, like is the true skill level of the pitcher versus the true skill level of the hitter, mm-hmm. or at least to a much greater extent than it exists in football. Because in football, it's kind of like, what is the true skill level of the player? Is the player uh, operating on his talent, or is the player operating within the environment of the coaching and the play calling and his teammates. And that's what's so vexing and so maddening with a guy like Mahomes because you don't know, like, a lot of teams pass on Mahomes, right? Yeah. But if Mahomes was on those teams, would he be Mahomes? Would he be doing anything remotely like this? The answer has to be no to that question. Even if he is exceptional, he is in the perfect spot with the perfect coach, the perfect system, and the perfect complement of players, right? I mean, it's quite the connection, quite the collection. Yes, and the thing that I think is really interesting, and I don't understand why more coaches don't do this, and maybe this is going to become the default, is Mahomes is very comfortable because, you know, I'm sure there's differences between, you know, the the way the Chiefs are playing and the way he played in college, but it's kind of like a college offense. Like, it's 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 wide open. It's shotgun-based. It's, it's, it's just doing things schematically. Like, the college game has... has such a high higher level of inventiveness to it offensively right. than the NFL game, right? right? So, but he's basically putting this player who was that kind of a player in college, and he is allowing him to express that that skill in an environment that I think is more comfortable for him and more familiar for him. And and why don't more coaches do this? Like, mm-hmm. why isn't like Baker Mayfield kind of playing? in the an Oklahoma kind of offense? Like, why why is he why is he playing in an offense that's, that's pretty <laughs> conventional by NFL standards? Right. We're talking to Michael Salfino. Michael is a sports writer for the Wall Street Journal, 538, the athletic fantasy football. He's a great follow on Twitter, at Michael Salfino. He also is the kind of the, he was kind of the beginning, he was the source, he was the cause, he was the proximal cause for Massey Peabody back in the day. He was the, oh, yeah, he was that, the, that, he was the yeah. impetus. It was a oh. big, big contribution to our life, Michael. Appreciate it. You just oh, mentioned. I appreciate it too. It's um, so I'm so uh, happy that that that's happened, and what you guys do now is just so. Um, it's something I look forward to every week. Well, that's, that's generous of you. You just mentioned the Browns and Mayfield, 
and the system they're in. I mean, my answer to your question is, I mean, coaches generally have systems and they kind of generally put players, they kind of squeeze players into the systems. They might even pick players to put in their system and you got to have a system, but you're saying there needs to be some flexibility in the other direction. When you come across a guy who's ideal for a system that you haven't been using, maybe you tweak your system. So the Browns have a chance to do that. They could hire a coach to better fit Mayfield. I mean, this is the franchise player, right? This is the guy here. And they just fired their coach. They just fired their offensive coordinator. They can do anything they want to with this. Do you think they'll hire a coach that fits Mayfield as opposed to all the other reasons they might hire a coach? It doesn't seem so. I mean, you know, making Greg Williams the interim coach is is not a step in that direction, I don't think. I think if I – I think that's kind of what we were talking about, too, like how Walsh said you only have to beat eight. I think that that's kind of one of those things that falls into that spectrum as well, right? Um, I mean, I think there are probably a handful of teams who would look at their players and coach uh, according to their – to their team as opposed to trying to fit their team into their coaching style, which I think would be uh, a model that would probably increase the probability of losing. Right. Yeah. Um, And they're just, but if you look at the teams now, I mean, you have uh, this, I think Sean Payton is somebody who is, who is flexible in terms of, of how he actually designs his offense, because you could see he's more run-focused now because he has an elite running back all of a sudden. Uh, the Rams are kind of doing that, where, where they're taking college concepts, I think, and, and they've adapted an NFL system, you know, that old like Mike Shanahan system into something uh, unique and powerful mm-hmm. based on their talent. Um, New England always does it, right? And um, you obviously have the Chiefs, and I'm sure there's probably like three or four other teams that we could that are at least on the periphery of that. But um, it just seems that most teams aren't aren't able to to um, figure out a way to adapt to their to their talent rather than vice versa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What we talked about Mayfield a little bit, uh, setting aside the coaching situation there in the system. What do you make of Mayfield so far? It was such an interesting quarterback crop. We had five quarterbacks taken in the first round. Four of them have already slid into pretty significant playing time. So we're getting a sense of these guys. Or or are we? So this is the thing. Are we? Or do you think people are overreacting? Do you think we can really learn that much from what a guy does in his first year? And, of course, you've got one of the highest profile guys right there in the New York area with your Jets. Yeah. I, you know, it, what, I've, what I've tried to do is uh, – it seemed like there were two guys that were true uh, quarterback one prospects, right? So, it, and it seemed like the the chances of those guys becoming franchise quarterbacks historically is about forty forty five percent. Okay, hold on. You're so, saying you're saying Mayfield and Darnold were the were the real were the real um, starting quarterback prospects, and you're less 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 optimistic about Rosen and Allen. And Jackson yeah, I, I think like in most drafts, each of those guys would have been strong considerations to be taken first overall, okay. where the other guys probably wouldn't have been. Okay. I mean, it's so you're, in you're, an exact way, but that's just my sense of Okay, things. fine, fine, fine. I know you've got a strong position on this. So, so you're saying there's kind of a distinction here between these five guys. And let's just look at the top two, Mayfield and Darnold. You're saying those kinds of guys have succeeded what did you just say, 44% of the time? So a, yeah, little, a little bit less than a... 45%, somewhere in there. Okay, all right. Okay, yeah. so so you're, 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 you're telling me how you're processing Darnell's season, I think. So go on, please, I'm very curious. So I, 
so so then what I try to do is uh, there are things that that you kind of glean that that I think increase the probability that the quarterback actually evolves into uh, a franchise quarterback um, that aren't really expressed on the field, like you know things like. Um, their their commitment to the to the craft like their ability to oh, 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 oh. what like is that what is that the facility okay so yeah that was such a it's kind of a cliche phrase selfie you know so what does it commitment is. to it the is. craft mean how do we know when we see that well i think you kind of have to live that job so i think that the important thing there is that if the guy is pretty much like all football and that's something that you're not going to know for sure but you could just get a sense based on on what the coaches and the and the um, teammates are, are saying about that. Like, and if you're fortunate enough, <clears throat> like I am sometimes, to be able to actually go to practices, you could talk to the players and to the beat writers and get a sense for um, how the players, how that player actually fits into that, into that, um, into that model. But okay. and then there's and then there's the things on the field too. So what I'm trying to do is when I see something good or something bad, I'm just trying to. Uh, adjust my sense of the probability of their ultimate success um, incrementally. Okay, like so without, I don't want to like overreact to, to, to things that are probably just small indicators. Okay, so I, this is really, you're saying a couple of things. One, let's start out with the base rate. So in, yeah. in this category of players, I'm going to put a 40, 45% chance that this is actually going to be a franchise quarterback. So you're starting there. That's your number. That's your categorization. Seems fine. But that's your starting place. And then you're going to refine it as you go through the season. And you're saying two things, I think. One is, I'm going to try to pay attention to some things that I think are diagnostic. So I'm going to, I'm, you, so you didn't say this explicitly, but you're saying, I'm not going to worry as much about wins and losses. I'm not going to worry much as about, you know, an interception here or there. These things are going to happen, especially to a first year quarterback. I'm going to look for some more fundamental indicators and we can talk yeah. about what those might be, but that's number one. But then you're also saying, and then I'm not going to move that much with them. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to move a little bit, but I'm not going to exactly. overreact to them. But you, but you want to be reacting, what you're saying, I think your main point is you want to be reacting to the fundamental indicators, not these more superficial ones that tend to catch our eye you know the pick sixes you open the season with pick sixes and you're like oh god or you end up with a, re- a losing record and you're like this guy's not it and you're saying right. yeah that's not really how we evaluate this guy exactly yeah so um it's it's basically based on the the reading that i did with tetlock and a lot of things are just like you seem to be sort of oriented this way as as well uh, as well where you don't you know, if you're trying to forecast something, you you don't want to be you don't want to re- overreact or underreact to saying you want to appropriately react. So I don't really know like what that level is, but I figure smaller moves in in one direction or the other based on things that you see is probably the most intelligent way to do it. So what are some so, things you've seen from Darnold on the field that move you a little bit, if only a little bit, but some of the more fundamental process kind of things you've seen on the field that you react to one direction or the other? Well, he he's he's got a um, he's good enough as far as uh, his athleticism to evade the rush. Mm-hmm. He's got a good sense of things in the pocket. He throws accurately on the move. Mm-hmm. Um, he does make um, the the NFL wow throws periodically, okay. which are throws that are um, uh, that most quarterbacks wouldn't wouldn't attempt. Uh, that show like a high level of downfield accuracy into small windows. Okay. Um, he doesn't play afraid, uh, uh, and right. he also manages to. Uh, by that, what I what I mean is that 
he, he never really focuses on the pass rush, which a lot of times is to his detriment. Um, he, he, keeps his, he keeps his focus downfield. Now, if I was a quarterback, the only thing I would think about is all those guys trying to kill me. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's all totally. I would see. No, and we, and we criticize quarterbacks for being, you know, getting happy feet and, and bailing too soon. And so you say to his detriment, you mean he takes a physical toll sometimes, but he's also a big guy, so he can do that. You know, I just went to the Ravens-Steelers game last weekend, and so it was yet another chance to us for Roethlisberger, kind of that, that incredible that incredible pocket awareness, that such difficulty bringing him down. I mean, it's such a frustrating thing to pull against. And so when you got a guy who has some of that on your side, it's a it's a real plus. Listen, I'm going to have to let you go, but I want to get a number out of you here at the end. We've talked about you started – with Darnold between 40 and 45, and you're not going to move very much this season. He's a first-year quarterback. But you're trying to pay attention to some fundamental process kind of measures, some observations that might move you one way or the other because you're very interested in whether this guy's going to turn out to be a franchise quarterback. We are nine weeks into the season. What is your current number on the probability that Darnold is a franchise quarterback for the Jets? The highest I got was 53%. Um, and, <laughs> you have it that precise, Michael, really? You got to yeah, 53? Yeah, usually, like, I, I, you know, my, my ballpark way to do it is to move, like, maybe, like, three points in each direction, oh, you that's, know? Okay. Um, and, and, uh, is this on a chart at, at your desk at home? Is there, like, a no, thing on the wall? I, I'm able to, it's like counting cards. Nope. I can keep, I can keep okay. track in my head. Okay. But the, but the problem with the last couple of weeks, and, and Darnold has, has um, especially last week, that was his worst game by far. But I don't know what to do with that game in terms of having it inform any opinion of Darnold as a prospect because the Jets couldn't execute a shotgun snap. Oh, so, really? oh, wow. Okay. So when I went to Dan Orlovsky, who's a great follow on Twitter, who's a former NFL quarterback, and I was like, am I overreacting to this? Or is it impossible to function as an NFL quarterback if you have no ability to, um, you know, to get a consistent shotgun snap, if you have to, you know, acrobatically catch Right, right. One. Sure. And he was like, oh, my God, that's just crippling. Like, <clears throat> it takes you out of your rhythm. It, Distract it totally you mentally. destroys everything you're yeah. trying to do as a quarterback for yeah. snap. Okay. So what do we do? So what do we do with that game? Nothing. It's a horrible so you do, game, you do nothing. Yeah. Exactly. Especially this early in a career, where look, that's what's going on in first year anyway. You're beginning to automate some of these mental processes that, when you first come into the league, demand all of your attention. So exactly. You're, you're, exactly you're right. completely interrupting that that automation process Over- essentially. Over such a thing, and I never, in all my years of watching football, it never occurred to me, like, I hope the shotgun snap is accurate. Like, <laughs> that, that is only, only my Jets could figure out an entirely new way to screw up yeah. a quarterback's performance. Well, you, you may not watch enough college. This is one of your failings, Michael. You don't watch enough college football, but what you would discover there is the snap is not, is not a given. Listen, Michael, we're going to have to let you go. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. This morning, always enjoy talking to you. Always enjoy reading your work. We wish you the best with it. Oh, thanks a lot, Cade. Vice versa, me too. All right. That was Michael Salfino, sports analyst for the Wall Street Journal for 538. And for the Athletic Fantasy Football, you can follow him on Twitter at Michael Salfino, longtime friend of the show. That is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. We have Rufus Peabody joining us in the last half hour of the show. So come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning. 
On my own for the last hour of the show, Audie Weiner was here early. He's in the classroom now. Shane is out and about. Eric Bradlow is out and about. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join us. Give us a ring if you'd like to join the show, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or email us, businessradio at com, Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle up there, at WMoneyBall. Send us questions and observations. We are just off the phone with Michael Salfino, talking mostly professional football. Before that, we were on the phone with Neil Greenberg, another great football writer. And in this last half hour, special guest segment, we don't usually do guests in the last half hour, but we had a chance to talk to Rufus Peterbody, so we jumped on it. Rufus is a longtime professional sports better. He rolled out of undergraduate and straight into Vegas. He's been on his own for about nine years now, I think, as a professional sports better. He's also the other half of the Massey Peabody football analytics. And he is the co-host of the Bet the Process podcast. Bet the Process, he co-hosts that with Jeff Ma. It's a great podcast if you want to follow sports betting. Those guys have a particular perspective, and it's an interesting thing to listen to once a week. Rufus, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Cade. Hey, man, good to talk to you, good to talk to you. So you made it out to Vegas okay. You voted. Rufus went from the East Coast to Las Vegas yesterday because he's registered to vote in Las Vegas. So I had to go do your civic duty in Nevada. I did. I don't even know who won the Senate race. When I went to sleep, I think it was still undecided. Well, they had one of the tight ones out there, and I'm an, I'm, I, I don't know either. I went to bed too early to catch it. I told you I was going to hold you responsible for how that thing went, so we're going to find out. Maddie's digging yeah. it up. But you've got some you've got some, some betting business to take care of probably out there. I'm curious. We have a lot of modeling and betting things to talk with you about this week but i'm curious like what when you wake up this morning what what in the sports world are you thinking about right now what sport has your attention the most what sport has my attention i would say college football in the nfl is, is that because you like the texas longhorns so much and you're worried about they're not doing as well as you expected them to i'm, I'm trying to figure out how to put more of a texas bias into the model i know, I know. <laughs> it's lame um all right so college football and texas football I mean, I mean, professional football. That's kind of the obvious answer. It's a little surprising. I thought you might have said something like, you know, I've got this, I've got this golf thing going on, or I'm trying to work on a basketball model, or I just I hired this hockey guy. Those guys haven't. That hasn't in, in, infringed too much on the way you think about football. No, I mean, those things are all kind of true in a way. Um, I am st- sort of starting to think about about uh, making a foray into basketball and, and some other things on the horizon, but but it's still football season, Cade. And there, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look through my futures and sort of see if there's any value in any of these books on the national title game. I think there's a lot of value in Clemson still here. It's, so, it's hey, listen, incredible that. Yeah, let's talk about it. So Matt tells me. I mean, I was just talking the first hour of the show about Clemson being kind of underrated. You know, we'd make them like a one point dog to Alabama on a neutral field if they ever play Alabama this season. It's going to be on a neutral field. Well, Matt Matt well, tells us that the well, lines out there are like. Point and a half. Okay, point and a half. But Matt says that, that the books out there are offering like eight or something. Eight and a half. Eight and a half. All eight right. and a half at the Westgate, where I'm staying right now. <laughs> okay. So let's let's put our money where our mouth is. You got to get down there and get some of that, right? I mean, when, I will. Yeah. When you, I mean, honestly, I mean, that's the kind of that's what you're saying. You do. You arrive out there. You've got your futures numbers. There are lines to be had. You're looking for discrepancies, and that's a big one that you see. It is, although normally if, if you see something that far off, um, <laughs> you worry about the model. It, it, it's sort of an indictment on the model. Well, and, and, there's, and I've been called, kid, and I should say we have been called out on Twitter 
for how off-market our numbers have been with Alabama and Clemson, or vis-a-vis Clemson. So why, Alabama so, right now is trading at minus 300, which, which implies a 75% probability of, of winning the national title game. Oh, my gosh. I just can't. I don't believe that. I just, think there's, I just don't think that's the way college football works, I mean, we, unless we're looking at something that we have just never seen before. And I'll grant you they are about as good as we've seen in a long time, but you're talking about categorically different to be 75%. Let's count how many games they have to play yet. They have to go yeah. through a couple of nothings and then Auburn and then Georgia and then two playoff games, and you're going to give me 75%? I just don't believe it. I don't believe but, that, that they, I don't believe they're that categorically different. But at this point, they do have a loss to give. They can yeah. lose a game. They don't have to win the SEC title. That's right. That, that's, that, that's fair. But they've, they've got, they could get banged up in those games. Lots of things can happen sure. in those games. However, I mean, they're pretty dependent. I mean, they're not dependent on Tua, but their transcendence is dependent on Tua. Yeah. I don't, can you say his last name? Is it? Yeah, no, so I don't. Iowa, I know better. Iowa. I know better than to try to say his last name. <laughs> so, yeah. well, what about Clemson, though, Rufus? Our numbers have Clemson. If it weren't for Alabama, we would have Clemson as one of the best, if not the best, college football team, according to our numbers, in the last ten years. And yet, nobody's talking yeah. about it. How could we be that wrong about Clemson? Well, I mean, they haven't really played. The funny thing is, neither team has has had a really tough game or a game that should be really tough. I know Clemson. Uh, Syracuse. They, they played Syracuse. Syracuse exactly when I mean they had uh, the Trevor Lawrence injury. Yeah, that right? was with their the backup concussion. quarterback, their number three quarterback at the time, now number two. Right, um, but I think Syracuse is better than we thought they were at the time. Also, I, I agree. And Trevor Lawrence is relatively new into this. Trevor Lawrence is. I mean, one one interpretation is that they were kind of knocking around, figuring things out, not trying that hard in the first half of the season or first you know, four or five weeks. And now Trevor Lawrence and the offense behind him is kind of catching their stride. And they're blowing people out by 50 points, by 60 points. Honestly, they're kind of looking like, like in Alabama. That's 100%. the best way to say it. I mean, they, they scored 77 points against Louisville. I just don't know how you can look. I mean, I, I get that Alabama is, looks great. I mean, clearly I get that. But that they're eight points better than the single best other college football we've team we've seen in 10 years that's that seems excessive to me and rufus i mean tell me about markets i mean we know that certain brands i mean when the entire media is on one story don't those don't those teams tend to get overbet? yeah and i do think i'm not saying that that alabama um the the, the futures market in alabama is efficient in any way and there's and even that eight and a half spread on a hypothetical national title game i mean there's you need to have a big edge there to bet it because there's a 50% chance, a little, actually slightly more than 50% chance that game won't happen. Yeah. So you're just tying up your money for a few months. Right. But so, the, um, but, but normally, I mean, but at least it's a two way market there. Yeah, normally right, you right, can't right. bet, you can't bet against Alabama winning the national title. You can just bet on them doing so. Right, right, right. So Rufus, let's talk a little bit about sports betting. I, I was thinking about on the way in this morning that there are some little details kind of useful details that that are kind of everyday nuts and bolts in your models that people may not know about and could be useful. So, you know, these are kind of situational effects or fixed effects. They're not about teams. Obviously, Massey Peabody is all about power rankings on the teams. But you mm-hmm. have these other inputs, like really fundamental inputs that I think people might benefit from. And I often I often have to remind I, I ask you what they are. So, so let's start with everyone knows home field advantage. And people think about home field advantage being a three-point thing. You end up estimating in like two and a half or something. Two point eight. And it's slightly different in college and pro, right? So, what are the numbers in college and pro? I think in in college it's two point eight. 
a little over that. In pro, I think the average is 2.4. But it, it varies. And I don't think that people realize that it's not the same for each team each week either. Well, so let's talk so, a little bit about that. So, one, I was going to ask you, does it vary across the season? I know we've talked some over the years about it. It kind of seems to matter differently over the season because you get better models of the teams. And so your your weight kind of shifts from these fixed effects when you don't know anything about the team, like a home field advantage, to more toward the team. And so the, the fixed effects get smaller. Is that is that a true thing or is that not a true thing? You know, I, I don't have any... You know, I've never. I don't even know if I've looked at if a home field advantage if home yeah. field advantage increases by week, but I feel like I probably have. But but that's that is not in the model. No. Okay, so you're talking I, about I how that varies across teams. I know you've looked some at like you know people when Seattle was really good, everyone talked about the home field advantage in Seattle, and you've looked at those kinds of things. My impression of what you found is that yeah, in any one season, it looks like a team might have a bigger home field advantage, but it's not persistent across seasons. And so it's a little bit silly well, to say because it's not predictive. It's not, it's not reliable. Yeah, well, I, I looked at like different five-year samples in the NFL and, and sort of saw if there was a significant um, random effect, I guess, it, which I, I mean by that sort of a Bayesian um, team-level effect. And you, you did see some significant effects there, but they weren't predictive of the next five-year sample. Right. So, right. Um, right. And, and, I mean, the most interesting thing was that Seattle wasn't the biggest home field advantage, actually. It was, like, Baltimore had a very large home field advantage. They, they have – this was – I looked at this three or four years ago, so that, that may have changed. But, um, but it, it was surprising to me. So you, you, what, you, what do you do with that? Basically, you take away that you don't have differences. You don't have reliable differences in home field in the NFL. Is that correct? That's correct. And, it, you know, a lot of people think Jacksonville has such a weak home field advantage. Um, but, you know, honestly, part of the reason, I mean, a lot of the reason for that is the fact that they don't have a ton of fans going to the games and that historically they haven't been a good team for most of the sample. So I think people sometimes um, – Conflate like being yeah. good and being good, like totally. having a, a large totally. home field advantage. It's totally, like, totally. You know, the, the Saints in the dome, right? Well, the Saints anywhere are going to be good, right? Right. So, uh, but, but I do think geography does matter, and I mean, teams in southern cities have tended to have you know lesser home field advantage. I think part of that is because I think it's been sort of well documented that, especially later in the season. You know, teams traveling from warm weather environments to cold weather environments are at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, do you bake that in some? How far they have to travel, or what direction they're going, and what time of year? Yes, I have the latitudes and longitudes of each stadium um, in there, and and I know that you know if the team is coming off a home game or a road game, and all a few other things. So, Rufus, to, to, it's kind of a cautionary label to others who might want to use that idea. How much when you go to put numbers on those kinds of considerations how much data do you use to estimate those numbers oh i'm using uh, i'm using tw- like the entire sample which basically. is about 12 years every game for 12 years in the nfl uh more than that since 2000 okay every game but for 17 is, years if i look if i look through my home field and, and so the other thing is i'm regressing heavily to the mean too well, that was gonna... i don't necessarily think that these and, and there is some art to that because i don't i i can't you know i don't want to overfit and so I'm kind of doing a few different model specifications that are similar uh, and sort of averaging out and then regressing back towards an okay. average home field. So okay. right now I think I regress 40% towards an average home field advantage. And so this week, for example, the largest home field advantage number I see in the NFL is going to be 3.2 and the lowest is going to be 1.8. 
Wow. Okay, so you are spreading them around a little bit, but you're not spreading them around because the saints are tough in the dome. You're spreading right. them around because of latitude, longitude, who traveled last week. But you said this thing, and I think this is really important methodologically, because you did a couple things that are very general there. The three things that are very general there, and I think are important to underscore. One, you're, so this is a nice idea. A lot of people might have this idea, and here's how you operationalize it. You go to 18 years worth of data, A, and a, and a complete set, right? Not select data. This is 18 years of comprehensive data. Two, you you estimate it with different specifications. You run two, three, four different models of what that thing looks like because every model involves some decisions. You're like choosing yeah. how to specify this thing, and you're probably going to overfit if you just pick the one that fits the data best. And so you do it three or four different ways, and you take the average of those things. So there's some real humility in that. And then the third step is the most humble thing of all. You say, you know, this is probably too extreme. This is probably not right. So I'm going to I'm going to regress it back to the average home field. And you're going to regress it not a little bit. You said you're going to regress it 40 percent back to the average home field. But I just think that, you know, Rufus, you didn't do that when you first started betting. Right. No, you learned you learned to do. You might have appreciated data. You knew that you get Uh as much data as possible, but you didn't appreciate one. Use multiple models and don't try to choose between them. And then uh-huh. two, this is something I've really heard you emphasize more over the years. You just, you, any effect you get, you believe about half of it. You know, basically, that's not a bad way to go. If you, if you get an effect, believe about half of it. It depends on what your model is, of course. Of course, you, of course. I don't believe half of Alabama's team level effect. Okay, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. But yes, yes, what I'm trying to add layers at the end. Because you look at stuff, I mean, you, it has to pass the, the eye test, too. Mm-hmm. Or the smell test, any any kind of face test. Well, the thing is, your your eyes and your smell is better than the <laughs> average person's because you've been doing this every you know every week for ten years, and that kind of experience has led you to these kinds of considerations. And because you know, there's this famous result in judgment decision making literature that the best calibrated judges and kind of the only calibrated forecasters or weather forecasters, and that's because they get feedback every day on their forecast. And you can't get better, yeah. you can't learn without feedback. Well, my strong sense is that another community of people who are good forecasters are sports betters because they're getting the exact same kind of precise, concrete feedback on a regular basis. And so I, th- I think it's interesting to ask how you go about this differently now than when you first came out of college 10 years ago before you had really done it professionally. You've done it professionally for 10 years. The way you've evolved is something that the rest of us should learn from. Well, so, I, I think that, you know, I, I do think that sports betters, the ones that are successful are, are good forecasters. The ones that are unsuccessful are broke. So right. there's, there's a bit of survivorship survivorship bias there well we can learn from i mean if we can study those that are there versus those that are not going to be there or who have gone out if we know enough about them to study what they've done that would be revealing let's just ask you so so as as a reminder we're talking to rufus peabody rufus is a professional sports better he is the host of co-host of the podcast bet the process it's a great podcast on betting you co-host that with jeff ma this is their second season of doing that they talk college football and pro football he's also the other half of massive peabody he's been with us from he's part he's more than half of it really dependent on rufus um but let's continue this this particular line of conversation i'm curious we've talked about a few things that you do when estimating these home field these subtle home field variations differently now than you used to and what other ways do you think you're a better analyst a better forecaster because of your experience betting for 10 years and you're by the way rufus is a strict quant i mean he has to blend various models, but he's always going to blend quantitative models. So in what ways do you do this better based on your experience? Well, I think I have more humility and I'm more, 
I guess I, when I came out here at the beginning, I, I sort of thought that, you know, I, I thought I knew more than I did. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is the way to do it. Like quant models are the only thing that matter, blah, blah, blah. And, and now I, and I think it, it humbles you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you realize how much you don't know and, and you're more, yeah. What's the consequence of that? What's the consequence of that humility? Work harder. Okay. And, and also, understand—I mean, understanding randomness better, I think. I think that's the biggest thing. Like, I, I think that time spent doing this helps you understand randomness so much better. And, and understanding um, that, I guess, the, I, I do understand there's a lot of ways to do things, but, but the same principles apply to everything. And, and that's kind of separating the, the signal from the noise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, on as granular level as possible. What's the what's the consequence of understanding noise better, understanding chance better? You say that's one of the you're, main things you've learned. So so what? What is the implication? Well, you're able to to get a model that's better. You're able to have a more precise measure of how good a team or player is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I think you also yeah. tend to you don't get as up or down as most people would, and now maybe you've got a stomach for it. But also from experience, you just in, in, from watching you and talking with you about some bad beats or when we have bad weeks, and you're just you're just not as moved by volatility as someone who sure. isn't exposed to it on a weekly basis. You're just kind of accustomed to standing there in the middle of all that volatility. And if you couldn't do it, I guess you wouldn't be in this business. No, but that, I mean, I lost six figures last week, and it, that's kind of it happens, right? Mm-hmm. So, my, my, but I was in a good mood because my fantasy team won. <laughs> it's good you had a hedge there, Rufus. <laughs> But I, but what I, what I what I think you're saying is you realize that when you have a bad week like that, because because you appreciate the role of chance and volatility, you don't get you don't worry too much about the model. You don't think all of a sudden you don't know what you're doing. You don't you don't lose faith. Right. No, I, I don't. And, and I mean, I understand how much is random. And also, I've been doing this for for long enough that you know I, I've made a stable living doing this, and I'm not worried that that. A bad weekend. I'm not. I'm not overbetting my bankroll yeah. by any means, yeah. and I think that's an important thing for for any sports better to to bet within. Um, I guess I want to say within their means. But when, when I moved to Vegas initially, when I was working for Las Vegas sports consultants, I would go around. And, I mean, I think I had a ten thousand dollar bankroll, and I was making bets of fifty dollars, a hundred dollars. I think my biggest bet I made was three hundred dollars, mm-hmm. and so um, just because that's how much I should be betting is based on the edges I had and, and the bankroll I had. Right, 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 right. You know, that is a long time now. How has the market, how's the market evolved since then? It reminds me a little bit of a conversation we had with Billy Bean, you know, 15 years ago. And we were asking how he, how he, how he felt about, you know, other people are going to learn what he's doing and the edges he's taking advantage of now are going to get smaller. And he's like, yeah, you know, we're picking up dollars right now. Maybe we'll eventually be picking up quarters. <laughs> Does that, is that the way it feels for you? Has the market gotten more efficient in the time that you've been involved? Oh, without a doubt. It, it's it's so much harder now than, than it was back then. I remember my first year out here in Vegas, I I was able to parlay on a game. Um, I think, I don't even remember who played. It was a college football game. But but the favorite covering a spread of 36 and the game total going over 53. Now, I mean, I'm sure you see why those are correlated. <laughs> yes. So, and you said those, those kinds of lines, those kinds of opportunities just don't exist anymore? The books have gotten no, that much smarter? Really. The books have gotten they, that they much have. smarter? They have. Wow. They okay. have. And, and also, you know, you have fewer independent books. And I think this is something that's going to change, I hope, 
with delegalization across the country. You're going to have new operators, and I'm hoping that the, the sort of um, – but I'm still hoping that the Vegas model holds over the European-style model, which the Vegas model is basically books are willing to take a bet. Um, and if, you, if you're a winning better, they're still willing to take that bet and take the posted limit, and you get a crack at them. Um, you know, you, you don't get to bet 100000 on a game like Floyd Mayweather does, but you get whatever their posted limit is. What is a typical um, posted limit, for example, on, a, on, a, on an NFL side? Just it's as gonna a... de- so it's going to depend. Uh, so, you know, on a Monday, it's going to be a lot lower. The Monday before um, before that game. Okay. Uh, then it will be on a Sunday. Okay. On a Sunday, I, I think I could. It would be ten to twenty thousand. Okay. Okay. All um, right. At some point, I, I would think twenty thousand is going to be is going to be the highest. It's going to be. So. So Rufus, we're down to just a couple of minutes. You're, you're talking about the future of betting, which is a big topic these days because so many states are considering legalizing it. And what is, what's the what's the one thing people should be paying, paying attention to if they think about getting getting a little more involved or not? Or what should we be, be paying attention to as the industry evolves? But we've only got a, a moment to do this. What show? We could have a whole. It's show a big topic. I know. I know. What should people be paying attention to? Well, I, personally, I think how many in different independent operators you have is going to be vitally important. Okay. Um, so competition. Because if you have a state, a state like Delaware, just it's, it's run through the lottery system, and all you have is William Hill. You know, what is their incentive to offer to offer um, competitive lines. pricing? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. In, in Vegas, the standard is minus one ten. Betters are, are um, betting eleven to win ten. You know, I don't know how much. Betters are willing to pay, or are they willing to to um, lay eleven and a half to win ten? You right. know, twelve to win ten. And if right. there's no competition, um, you know, operators could get away with that, and it could be worse for the consumer. Okay, got the it. Other, the other thing, Rufus, we have to Rufus, we have to, pull the, we have to pull the plug. Okay. I'm sorry, man. Okay. I t- we all have to backstop <laughs> sports betting. It's a great, it's a great topic, important topic right now, and you can hear Rufus talk more about it on his podcast with Jeff Ma, Bet the Process. They talk about that stuff a lot. Listen, man, thanks for taking the time. We know it's early out there in Vegas. We wish you the best with the trip. Thank you for spending the first hour, first half hour of the day with us. Enjoy it, kid. You bet. That was Rufus Peabody, longtime sports better. He is co-host of Bet the Process, the podcast, and co-creator, co-founder of Massey Peabody Analytics. That has been our show, another two hours of sports analytics. We do it live every Wednesday morning here at Sirius XM, Matty Dats, boss man, appreciate the help. Always huge help to this today on the rundowns. Danielle Bruno on the board, very much appreciate it. For Audie Weiner, who was in here for the first hour, this has been Cade Massey. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.